Amen, amen. We're running into a couple technical difficulties, but we're working it out this morning. All right, so the names of God. This has been such an awesome series. I really enjoyed um, prepping for this series, too. This has been some of the best, I think, Bible study I've done on my own, and, and it seems like in a long time. But just to kind of give you guys a little a bit of a recap, uh, two weeks ago, we started this new series. We explored the idea of, like, what's in a name, and we saw that... Um, the infinite creator of the universe desires an intimate relationship with us such that we discover his nicknames um, through our experience with him. We're going to be really leaning into that heavily in this series that God is telling a story and we're invited to be part of that story. And in being part of that story, we learn about him and who he is. He teaches us about his character, his virtues, um, the things that he is. And then last week, um, we, we started at the very beginning with the story of creation. And we saw that God, or his name in, in the beginning, Elohim, desires to fill every aspect of our life with his creative power, this power that he used to create the universe out of nothing. The all-powerful God of creation that brought into being everything that we can see out of nothing, out of nothing, the thing that we cannot see. And so we're going to be um, exploring a new name today, but you'll see that these names kind of flow together. So today, we're going to talk about the Lord is inviting you to take part in his great story of redemption. Now, I know that the Lord kind of sounds like an archaic term, uh, but we'll see that we see it a lot in the Bible. And if you bear with me, hopefully it'll make a lot more sense by the end of uh, this sermon. All right. I need to clarify something. Last week, we talked about the name of God, Elohim, and technically, Elohim is not a name. Elohim is more of a title or a type. Uh, it was used by many people in ancient times to refer to their deity. And in Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament was originally written in, it meant any kind of elevated or spiritual being, and occasionally was even used for humans who were in a place of authority or in a place of judgment over uh, people. So I think this creates a little bit of a problem. We notice that when we talk about God, oftentimes we assume that who I'm talking about is the same God or person that this other person is thinking of, and we find out in life that that is rarely the case. Regardless of somebody who has a different religious background than we do and believes in a completely different God, even within Western evangelical Christianity, oftentimes we have a different picture of God when we talk about God. Even in this church, in City Point Church, I think when we say God, oftentimes we, that brings to mind uh, different ideas. Um, and, and we want to kind of overcome that. Um, C.H. Uh, Spurgeon has this amazing quote. I'll probably be, there was so much material for this week. I'll probably be feeding it into social media as we go through the week. But Spurgeon talks about how, you know, it's claimed that the greatest study of mankind is the study of man. And, he's, and he holds that the greatest study of Christendom, us, would be the study of God. 
and his name and his divinity and what that means. And so hopefully we gain some clarity as we work our, our way through scripture. Um, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he has this great illustration that I'm going to borrow from him today. Um, if we think about you wanting to talk about a person, let's say Nathan, and you say the name Nathan, that creates a little bit of confusion. There are a lot of Nathans, right? And even in Springdale, there are a lot of Nathans. At this church, there are at least two because my son is also named Nathan. And so how do you differentiate between the Nathans when you're in conversation? Well, you could go a step further and use a more specific name like Nathan Walsh, but there are a bunch of Nathan Walshes in Arkansas. And in this church, because he's my son, there are at least two Nathan Walshes. And so how, how do we get more specific? How do we know when we talk about someone um, who we are talking about? And we do that by sharing part of their story, right? If, we're, if you were talking about me, you might include that, you know, I grew up in Mississippi, and that comes through in my accent every now and then, even when I'm trying to to cover it up, or that I moved to Northwest Arkansas and helped plant City Point Church, right? You tell a little bit of the story, and that helps to um, be more specific about the person uh, that you're referring to. And I think this is the purpose of Scripture and why we as Christians should be people who study this ancient text. And it's because it tells the story, the backstory, and the character of this God who has become in relationship with us. And so we can become more specific when I say, God, who am I talking about? Um, so all that to say, when you see G-O-D, God, in the Bible, it's the name or title Elohim or some kind of variation. There's a, there's a few different ones, you know, like hyphenations and shortenings of the name. Um, so now you know a little bit of Hebrew, when you're reading through scripture, or we put scripture up on screen and you see the word God, you know that's referring to Elohim. All right, now let's get into the meat of today's lessons before the kids in Kid City go crazy. Today we're talking about the Lord is inviting you to take part in his great story of redemption. Last week we talked about a guy named Moses and the Israelites, and they're wandering through the wilderness as they went from Egypt where they were in slavery to this land that God had promised them. <clears throat> While they were on this journey, there was a lot of uncertainty, right? Where were they going to get food? Where are they going to get water? Where are they going? How do you raise your family in the desert? And um, this uncertainty we see rolled over into fear and concern and then complaining, as so often it does in life. They couldn't recognize the providence of God in their lives at the moment. So Moses was inspired to write their history, to remind them of the God whose people they were. So let's start in Exodus. You know basically the story of Moses. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt. If you haven't, you should go watch it. I'm going to ru ruin the plot line a little bit today because that's what we're going to be talking about. Now, Moses was a Hebrew. He was one of the nation of Israel, and he was raised in Pharaoh's house in Egypt as royalty. And through of a, a couple of interactions he has, one involving him killing an Egyptian, 
the tension between his Hebrew nationality and the fact that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and his Egyptian upbringing as royalty um, kind of comes to a head and he runs away and finds himself in the desert living in the house of a distant cousin who is the priest of Midian. Moses marries the priest of Midian's daughter and then begins to be a shepherd of this man's uh, uh, flock of sheep. He tends the sheep. So let's start in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2 verse 23 says, years passed. So there's a gap of time between when he runs away and where we're picking up. Years passed and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. When we read God there, what do we hear? Elohim, right? That's the, the name from last week. So their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's their forefathers or their ancestors. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew that it was time to act. How interesting is that? And then into uh, chapter 3, one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of, Me of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. Now, Moses is having this amazing experience, and that might cause you to miss what happened here in the first few verses of chapter 3. We go from talking about God, Elohim, to talking about the Lord. And why is the Lord all capitalized? Well, we have a great explanation if we continue to read. So this character, the Lord, tells Moses that he's heard the cries of Israel and that he is going to deliver them from slavery in Egypt and lead them to a land that will be perfect for them. And not only is he going to do this, but he's sending Moses to accomplish this task. So we have this mo moment where Moses is like, um, me and Pharaoh kind of have a history it's probably not a good idea for you to send me back to Egypt. And, and God's like, oh, oh, it's not about you, Moses. <laughs> and you think I let all that happen to you for nothing? Like, you've got trauma you're trying to unpack, and I'm about to use that for my glory. Didn't read the whole passage, but I'm going to throw up this verse. God says, and I will be with you. When you go to Pharaoh in Egypt, I will be with you. God saying, I will be, will become very important. So I'm kind of priming the pump. I'm foreshadowing. I'm not sure if it's foreshadowing if you mention that it's foreshadowing, <laughs> but it's foreshadowing. But Moses continues to protest. This isn't, this isn't enough to convince him. When we pick up in verse 13, but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So we, hear, we see here that when God talks about himself, he uses this Hebrew word that we have to translate into two English words. And the Hebrew word is hayah, and it's the ultimate statement of being, as Libby was talking about during the communion today. It was used for I was, I am, and I will be. They're all encapsulated in this word, hayah, that God uses when referring to himself. God is saying his name, the name that he introduces himself with, is a statement about being. He is self-existent. He is the source of all power. He is, we saw this last week, the only creator. He is love. And when it comes to these kind of qualities, he is the perfect embodiment of those qualities. Like we might have like a fleeting, temporary, fickle idea of love, not God. He is love. He is justice. He is mercy. He is good. So he tells Moses, tell the people, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. Well, it wouldn't make sense for Moses to say, I am has sent me to you, right? That's a statement about self. And so we get this proper noun, Yahweh, that means he is, he was, he will be. All right, we need to take a break for a moment from the momentum of this sermon and get a little bit nerdy. So I'm going to push up my glasses. You guys bear with me. Ancient Hebrew often didn't write the vowels, like hardly ever, especially if you go way back to when this was written. There were no vowels. And so Yahweh was written with only its consonants. Yod, hey, vav, hey. They also read in opposite direction than we do right? Yod, hey, vav, hey. And then the vowels would be inserted by the reader. Um, you can think about it as like if you were reading and you saw BLVD or RD, you wouldn't say those letters. You would say boulevard or road. You would insert the vowels. So now the ancient Hebrew scribes held this name, this supreme name of God in very high esteem. And uh, we see in Leviticus that blasphemy against the name of God is a very serious sin. Like it's the top. You don't blaspheme God. And so to try and avoid this, they wouldn't utter the supreme name of God. They would replace it with the name Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. All right? Then as... Um, vowels were introduced into the language, the vowels of Adonai, I know we're getting a little technical, were placed onto these four consonants. They're so, they're so famous that they have a name. It's the tetragrammaton, meaning four letters. So they would place the vowels of Adonai on these four letters, and that's where you get Jehovah, right? They would say it a little bit differently, Yahowah, and then we transliterate that into English where we have the J sound, we have the V sound, and we say, we say Jehovah. And so 
In most Bibles, this word is going to be translated as Yahweh. In some older Bibles, it's translated as Jehovah. And this is literally a tomato-tomato situation. We're not 100% certain what the correct pronunciation is. We are certain of this. Almost 100% of the time in Scripture, when you see the word LORD, on all caps, it is referring to the proper name of God, the name that he introduces himself to Moses by. And regardless of the name that you see, whether it be Yahweh or Jehovah or Lord, we know that it represents this deity, this Elohim that Moses is introduced to as he was, he is, and he will be. All right? So we might go back and forth on the way that we pronounce it, but it's God's name, and it means being, ultimate being. So we have this name, Yahweh, or Jehovah, or Lord, and it means pure existence. But what makes it personal? What makes it a personal name? Well, for that, we need another story. Remember, that's how we determine who we're talking about, right? We tell the stories of that person. And so we're going to go back to Genesis. And you're like, Nathan, you already talked about Genesis last week. Bear with me. Genesis 1.1, we see that um, we're introduced to this being as Barah Elohim, right? The creator God. And um, after the two verses that we read last week, he continues his work of creation. On the first day, he creates light, and he says that it's good. Day two, God creates sky, and he says that it's good. We've talked about these days, right? And after each day of creation, it follows, God says that it is good. Then on the sixth day, he creates man in God's image, in Elohim's image, and he gives him dominion over all the animals. Then on the seventh day, God rested. And it finishes up in Genesis 2, verse 3. Oh, I went too far. Genesis 2, verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from his work of creation. And you know some Hebrew now, so you know that we're talking about Elohim. Now I've got to ask you, what story follows the story of creation? Think about it for a second. Do you have a guess? Well, if you said another story of creation that's different but also the same, you would be correct. The first story of creation is followed immediately by the second story of creation, and it picks up in Genesis 2, verse 4. We read, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden. Oh, sorry, did I? I skipped. Six and seven's not up there. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And then in verse 15, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. 
So God does a strange thing here, and I'm going to try to stay on point because there is a lot that you could say in this passage. Uh, Libby, I'm referring to Libby a lot today. A little while back, you guys might remember in the friends and families group, she posted this explanation. Those consonants that spell out the name of the Lord sound like breath. We talked about last week that it was the wind or spirit or breath of God that was hovering over um, the void of creation before he began. And then this breath enters into Adam or mankind and animates us or gives us life. It's pretty interesting. But I want to focus in on verse 15, right? The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. We've seen Lord God a few times in this passage, and we know that Lord is God's proper name. So in chapter 2, verse 4, the narration changes to this personal name of God, and we see that God gets his hands dirty when he creates humanity, that he breathes his image into us, and then he gives us a job. He places Adam to tend the garden. God could have tended the garden himself. Arguably, God could have done a better job than Adam because Adam almost immediately screws it up. So why? Why does God give Adam this job? He's pure being, right? God is Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord, is pure being, but he gives Adam a task, a task that Adam immediately blunders. So why did he place man in the garden to watch over it? It's difficult to make sense of, of this whole situation, but God seems to desire to tell a story of redemption. God wanted to be salvation for his people. God had that desire. And so Yahweh wanted to partner with humanity. Jehovah wanted to work to set things right. And who did he pick as his partner? Us. So we remember from week one, the infinite creator of the universe desires an intimate relationship with us where we get to know him. And then last week that Elohim desires to fill every aspect of our life with his creative power. He doesn't have to do that. He's holy. And I know holy also kind of has a connotation to it, like holier than thou. But when we see holy in scripture, in reality, it means different, other, set apart. When it comes to comparing Jehovah to man, Adam, there isn't really any comparison. The only word that we can use is holy. They're different. Oh, there we go. And then he goes and makes covenants. We haven't talked about covenants necessarily, specifically. That could be a whole sermon series in itself. But God puts himself into a binding contract with his creation, his creation that he knows isn't going to uphold their end of the deal. But again, he desires to tell the story of redemption. His power is awesome, but he goes and hears the cries of his people who are in slavery. He doesn't need to do that. He's the all-powerful creator of the universe. We get a glimpse of this in Romans. Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, the church in Rome. 
And he's writing about the gospel or this good news that has come from God. And in Romans chapter 10, we read this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is quoting the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. What do you think he's talking about when he says Lord? He's talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, being. If you combine the Hebrew word for God's name, right, Yahweh, and the Hebrew word for salvation, you actually, combining those two words together, you get a name. You might be familiar with this name. The name is Joshua. And Joshua literally means Yahweh saves or Jehovah saves. You might not know this, but Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name, Joshua. Joshua was Jesus's name given to him by Mary and Joseph. So even in Jesus's name, we have this idea of Yahweh saves, and it gets even better than that. So you might've heard people say or claim that Jesus never claimed divinity. Jesus never said that he was God. This is thrown around a lot in debates that he never said that he was God. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, but he took it further than that. The Gospel of John chapter eight records this interaction that Jesus is having with a group of people. Some of them are Pharisees and they're going back and forth. And Jesus says, if you hold faith in me, if you believe what is true, then you will never die. And they shoot back with, look, even the prophets, even the great men of our faith, even Abraham died. And Jesus corrects him. He says, no, 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 no. Abraham was looking forward to my arrival. He's hinting that maybe Abraham was looking forward to salvation and redemption. Abraham was part of that story. And they fire back, look, you can't be more than 50 years old, how in the world do you know what Abraham looked forward to? And then we see this in John chapter eight. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. What do you think Jesus was saying when he said, I am? He was claiming to be Yeshua, Yahweh saves. But we know that the, the Jews took blasphemy very seriously. In scripture, it looks like Jesus was crucified for claiming to be a king of the Jews. But the Jews really brought Jesus before the Romans for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. We see in the person of Jesus Christ that Yahweh is a God that hears our cries for help. 
Jehovah is a God that empowers us and then invites us to take part in his plan of redemption. The Lord is inviting you to take part in his great story of redemption. I have a little story to illustrate this. If you guys haven't met my son, his name's Nate, and he's like 22 months old, almost two. A few months back, I invited him to help me put the dishes away out of our dishwasher into the cabinets. And something about taking that disorder from the dishwasher and setting it right into all the, ca- into all the cabinets just spoke to the little guy's soul. And now he is constantly checking to see if the dishes are clean because it's his job to put them away. Now, Nate cannot put dishes away. He can't reach the cabinet and the cabinets that he can't reach are all locked. But he calls on my name, right? No matter where I am in the house, he calls on my name and I come into the room and he gets the dishes out of the dishwasher and hands them to me. I empower Nate to take that disorder in the dishwasher and put it right. And that is the kind of God that we serve. He is listening for our cries of help. He desires to enter into our life. And not just that, he's inviting us to take part in his great story of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we just stand in awe that you would care about us so much that you want to know us and be known by us. And so we thank you for your scripture and the story that you're telling throughout time. Yahweh, you were, you are, and you will be. That power lives inside of us. And so we just thank you for the opportunity to help you set this world straight. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand up, let's sing.